0: You know we can't just go for, for 30 minutes of therapy once or twice a week and expect that to solve the problem. It's, it's not going to do that, which is why I think so many tendon problems rumble on for as long as they do. Hello everybody, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Health and Sports Show. My name's Tom Butterfield and I'm ready to get stuck into what is a bit of a nemesis of a lot of athletes, uh, whether they be endurance athletes or multi-sprint sporters like football, rugby, hockey, netball, all that sort of stuff. But sports people quite often will suffer some kind of Achilles pain within their life, but more specifically, an Achilles tendinopathy. So we're going to talk about that today. But how many of you, raise your hands, because obviously I'll know if you raise your hands, right? Uh, How many of you have experienced Achilles pain at some point? Well, this is quite often caused by something we call a tendinopathy. Now, if we're going to get all Latin on this, if we split this word into two parts, we have the tendon, which, strangely enough, means tendon, but the pathy at the end in Latin means disorder. So what that means is we have a tendon Disorder, whereas a tendonitis means a tendon inflammation, and I'll explain why we don't use tendonitis quite so much later on in the episode. But this episode specifically came about uh, because, well, <laughs> well, to be honest, I'm I'm a bit of a geek <laughs> regarding uh, my profession and sport in general, which is why we've got the health and sports show. Uh, and I also take my responsibility very, very uh, seriously uh, when it comes to improving the health and well being of my current clients and also to you, the viewers and, and, and the listeners as well. So that doesn't happen by itself, does it? You know, you need to put the graft in, you need to put the work in. Uh, it doesn't happen on its own, like I said. So I'm always out looking for interesting uh, research that you know it might contain a few little gems that could perhaps help to improve the health and well-being of of you guys in in some way uh, or maybe it's just something interesting uh, or maybe it's inspiring i don't know but i'm always looking to learn and improve uh, and in all honesty i absolutely love it it's it's what gets me up and gets me fired up in the morning is thinking that uh, later on today i'm going to know something more than i did earlier and be that little bit more prepared to help the viewers uh, of you on youtube the listeners on spotify apple these are all sorts of different platforms that are out there that some of them i've never heard of and uh, and also my clients that i work with on a day-to-day basis as well but the article that caught my eye recently was a whopping 291 pages long <laughs> i nearly fell off my chair <laughs> I was trying to figure out how I was going to, uh, to explain to my wife and kids that they might not really see much of me next week. <laughs> I seriously thought about ditching it. Not my family, but the, uh, the article. But then you can't unsee it, can you? You can't unsee things that you know are going to help. So I got stuck into it. <laughs> but fortunately... Before I got too deep into it, I found out that the authors had very, very kindly uh, also published a 10-page summary, (laughs) which was a bit of a result for everyone (laughs) all round. And I love them for doing that, so thank you. So I've taken that shorter version and I've distilled it uh, a little bit further and bought you all what hopefully the juicy, useful parts that can be used in your sort of day-to-day life if you like and help to improve that achilles tendinopathy that you're suffering with or maybe we're looking to reduce the risk of you getting an achilles tendinopathy in the future because prevention is much better than cure especially with tendon problems now I've put a link to both versions of the article, the 291-page Monster, and also the slightly more digestible 10-page version as well. I've stuck that in the show notes for you so you can have a look at those. They're very interesting to be honest with you, very well written. So, anyway, let's let's get going. Let's talk about Achilles tendinopathy for a little while. Now, first when a client comes in to see us, we want to hear all about the problem, right? This part is known as the clinical history. Uh, this is where we uncover quite a lot of the important information as to what the problem might be and what's potentially caused it to happen. It's a really vital step and it's often uh, missed and, or, or misunderstood uh, the the importance that there is for it. Don't look for treatment first. I know you want to get better, but don't be in too much of a rush to you know, skip straight to treatment and, and don't seek out a solid diagnosis first. Uh, you know, it's, it's impatient, yes, you wanna get better, yes, but trust me, in the long term, it could save you months and months of time, as long as you go about it the right way. Uh, the right diagnosis equals an accurate treatment plan. No diagnosis equals, chuck some at a wall and uh, and, and see what sticks. But it's your choice, you know, no judgment, you're a grown-up i'm assuming watching this so you can make your own decisions and decide what you want to do but the things that we look out for in the history are uh, number one where does it hurt (laughs) good place to start right people with achilles pain though it will strangely enough uh, they'll often point to their achilles But there are actually two different types of Achilles tendinopathy. So it is important to be very, very accurate with where they're pointing to. First of all, we've got an insertional tendinopathy. Now, the insertion counts for where it attaches into the heel and the next two centimetres of the tendon. And then we have a mid-portion tendinopathy, which is from two centimetres of the tendon all the way to seven centimetres, okay? I'll try and put a little diagram in there for you to make it easier than just me doing that into an empty space, (laughs) as good as an idea as it seemed at the time. But it's important to know which one we're dealing with because they are actually treated slightly differently when we get to the treatment phase. Now, secondly, has that person, have you or has the person you know gone through a relatively sharp increase in training load? Now, that could be an increase in the amount of times you train, otherwise known as the frequency. It could be an increase in the length of time that you train for, or duration of training, or it could be how hard the training is, or how difficult the session was. And that would be what we call intensity of training. Now, if you increase all of these quite sharply, or maybe even just one or two of these, then you are increasing the risk of overloading your achilles tendon and causing a tendinopathy so you need to be careful for that and thirdly we look for family history we're looking for history of rheumatoid disease or a hypercholesterolemia yeah good scrabble score right now rheumatic disease is associated with achilles pain because it causes something called an enthesitis which is basically inflammation of where the tendon attaches into the heel. Another one of my wonderful descriptions there. I'm going to put a picture over that so you probably won't see it. (laughs) And uh, hypercholesterolemia can cause what's called xanthomas, which are little cholesterol deposits, which can also go on to cause some kind of Achilles pain. Now, if we find that there's a, a positive family history of either of these two conditions, they have Achilles pain, but there's been no obvious change in their uh, exercise or or loading, then it might be beneficial to get this person sent off for blood tests in order to rule out one or both of those conditions. Now, there's obviously a lot of other things that we'd ask during the clinical history, but when we're looking purely at Achilles tendinopathy, they are the three most important things that I personally like to check and find most useful. Now, after the history, uh, we want to examine the Achilles. We want to sort of prod and poke and take a look at it. So we're looking specifically for any sign of tendon thickening compared to the opposite side. So if it's the left one that's the problem, we'll check it compared to the right side and see if there's any type of, uh, if the left tendon is thicker than the right one. Uh, We'll also give it a little light squeeze as well down the tendon, just to see if there's any pain elicited. And here we can... Uh, check our insertion to our first two centimeters of the tendon and then from two centimeters to seven that's going to be our mid portion as well so if there's any tenderness down the sides or, or onto the tendon there then we know we're probably dealing with some kind of tendinopathy especially if it's doubled up with a bit of thickening and increased loading but if the achilles isn't painful or thickened then we'd examine in a bit more detail some of these structures around it so for example on the inside of the ankle the medial side of the ankle then we'd be checking the uh, flexor hallucis longus tendon uh, specifically and we would also on the lateral part of the uh, ankle on the outside would be checking the perineal tendons as well because they all run parallel with the uh, with the achilles there tibialis posterior as well but um it shows up i found a little bit differently now, we, we, we take a history and we have a look at the uh, examination. The next thing people want to do usually is they want to take a picture, right? Because we love a scan, don't we? Everyone wants a scan of some kind because it's going to give you the answer, won't it? You know, if you can see the Achilles, it's going to give you the answer. But um, no, it won't. <laughs> this is a big enough topic. Uh, for an episode all of its own with regard to the usefulness of of imaging and and showing up problems. Uh, So I'm going to stop it there and we'll come back to it in another episode and cover it fully. But in this research paper, they found that only 25% of the experts in the research felt that imaging of any kind was needed for Achilles tendinopathy. So only one in four. They advised to use imaging only if there was any doubt regarding diagnosis or maybe if the treatment program wasn't progressing as they'd expect. But if imaging was used, it was usually diagnostic musculoskeletal ultrasound imaging. Okay, another Scrabble score as well. Hell of a thing to say off one take when you're doing a a video as well. Uh, I didn't, by the way, it took a few. (laughs) Now, I'm an MSK sonographer, which means that I do diagnostic musculoskeletal ultrasound examinations. And I actually find it's very, very useful for looking at any kind of tendon pathology, especially Achilles tendinopathies, because it enables you to sort of rank them or put them into one of the three stages of tendinopathy. The first one is reactive, and that's where there's very little structural change, just a bit of thickening. Uh, Disrepair is where you have a little bit more structural change, maybe some new blood vessels coming in. And then degenerative is where there's quite a lot of structural change. Again, more blood vessels. And yeah, it's looking a bit of a mess there. So it's quite good to know where someone's sitting structurally because that could actually help dictate where we put them later on when we're we're looking at the rehabilitation or treatment phase. So I find it quite useful, but I understand that diagnostically it's not specifically uh, needed in order to give yourself a good solid diagnosis. If you've got thickening of the tendon, pain on palpation, and you've got a relative increase in load, then you're probably going to say, well, that's three pretty solid pieces of evidence for diagnosing an Achilles tendinopathy. Now with imaging we might find uh, some kind of deformity so things like heel spurs uh, which is its fancy name is a Hagland morphology but lots of people have heard of heel spurs. Oh. There was a time when when these were found on x-ray or other imaging uh, people were often whipped into surgery because it was felt ah this morphology or this heel spur is what's causing yeah. uh, the issue. Well not anymore. Uh, the research has shown that uh, and I quote specifically here actually from the research, I've popped it in my notes just here, uh, i put my glasses on. Uh, the presence of this heel spur or Haglund morphology should not change your treatment approach or cause any significant delay to improving the Achilles tendinopathy. So therefore they're saying that if you see this on imaging, this Haglund morphology or heel spur, then it shouldn't make any difference to the treatment outcome or prognosis. So is there any need for them to be taken into surgery? No. So what do we do now? We've asked some questions, we've prodded and poked about a little bit, and then we've maybe looked at some pictures. So what do we do? We've decided that we've got an Achilles tendinopathy. Okay. Well, the research paper split treatment into three distinct sections. The first of which was education. Uh, They explained that this should be, and again, another direct quote from the paper, should be the interactive exchange of knowledge between client and therapist. So in other words, it's not a lecture. It's not just the the clinician or therapist going, this is what you should do. This is a discussion, an active discussion, uh, where the clinician and the client talk together and explain and understand what the condition is, the prognosis, and they talk through any hopes, expectations of, of improvements, uh, maybe any concerns of are they gonna get better, doubts of whether they can stick to the rehab programme, uh, any past experiences, maybe they've had Achilles tendinopathy before and it didn't go well, or maybe it did go well, and any limiting beliefs they might have are just examples of what you could discuss. But it's really important, I think, to discuss expectations. And it's important that the clinician and the client communicate honestly how long they expect things to take in order to get better, to get to where they want to be. So maybe someone's got a marathon in October and they've come to you in May and they're saying, am I going to be likely to uh, be able to get back into a solid uh, sort of lump of training and then get in and and run a personal best for the marathon? Uh, It's important to, to talk about that because... If these expectations are widely out of alignment, if the runner thinks, well, yeah, of course, I'll be back for the marathon and and run a personal best. But the therapist is thinking, no chance, mate. Then that's only going to cause a bit of friction, you know, some confusion down the road. So it's really, really important. I think if anything, if you sort out nothing else, is to sort out expectations of, of when we expect this to improve and by how much. So a little tip for clinicians there, but also for clients to ask that question if it isn't brought up. And number two is load management and it's all about temporarily replacing pain provoking loads with non pain provoking loads now don't hear what I'm not saying we're not recommending you totally kick back and rest load management is activity modification which is relative rest relative rest compared to what you were doing not complete rest which is doing nothing because we know that what's called a wait-and-see strategy, where you just sit around hoping it's going to get better, you know, fingers crossed, real passive uh, idea of treatment, just doesn't work as well as this active treatment program. Now, it's very important uh, to be active, like we said, during the rehabilitation. And slowly looking to progress this rehab program helps to reduce the risk of any sort of flare-ups The challenge is to really look for a load uh, that's within manageable limits. So we're not necessarily saying that you should seek non-painful loads. We're saying that you need to listen to your body and remain flexible, patient, and be willing to change things up if need be. We tend to recommend that, and the research also recommends, that clients use a pain scale in order to monitor the loads so you can get a little bit of consistency within yourself if nothing else because what i think is a five out of ten you might think is a two out of ten or vice versa so it must be sort of related to yourself or related to that individual each time now we don't really want your pain level going above a five out of ten like i said if it does then we'll need to modify your activity a little bit in order to get below that threshold again or at that threshold. It's a fluid process, so you need to be flexible and willing to change with whatever's put in front of you. And the third option, as I scroll through my notes, is exercise therapy. Now, this is the rehab side of things. This was recommended to be a 12-week programme of calf muscle and Achilles tendon strengthening exercises. Mm. The research noted that this doesn't always get complete symptom resolution. So this is really important to point out to the client from the very, very start that they're looking for at the very least a 12 week program of strengthening exercises to do before they should expect any sort of noticeable improvement. And even then it might not make any difference to their pain yet. Because remember, we want to make sure that expectations are aligned in some way and together. Now, I've put a link into the uh, show notes Uh, of a diagram which shows the flowchart of how the exercises should be uh, ordered and how they should be implemented, uh, which is really useful, I think, for both clients and for clinicians uh, as well. It just gives that little bit of clarity to what I'm talking about. Um, And I'll I'll talk you through it now. so uh, So either click on the link now. Uh, or if you're watching this on youtube it should be right next to me either a little picture in picture or or something i'll try and sort of ping that into the uh, screen but it talks about isometric exercises which are a static contraction which is where the muscle is switched on but we're not moving at one point it was thought that these exercises gave a really really good analgesic effect so if you had a painful achilles then you could start to do some isometric exercises and it would really help to lower the pain but research as it's sort of updating isn't really clear with this we're just finding that some groups do improve with it and some groups just don't the main thing for isometric exercises really is if you can't tolerate the next set of exercises which is isotonic exercises which where the muscle shortens or lengthens as we're using it now if the pain is above a five out of ten when you're doing these then that's when we'd go back to those isometric exercises We could also add weights onto it as well but of course that's going to be a progression Uh, we're going to try and make the tendon that bit stronger the calf a bit stronger but you don't start adding weights if you can't even do the isometric exercises or isotonic exercises on their own so remember we're looking to slowly progress now do you remember that i said what must feel like a long time ago now if you haven't gazed over already that uh, we treated insertional and mid-portion tendinopathy slightly differently do you remember we said that well done if you do you're still awake excellent well with an insertional tendinopathy what we do is we perform the exercises on a flat surface okay so if you have an insertional tendinopathy you do your exercises on the floor not off of a step which is what we'd use for mid-portion tendinopathy so When you're on a step, you sort of stand the balls of your feet on the steps and then you drop yourself down and then you bring yourself all the way up. So it's a longer range, whereas if it's an insertional, we'll just start on the floor, go up onto your tiptoes and then just come back down again. Okay? If you do that, you can't really go wrong. So some of the things we shouldn't do are, interestingly, anti-inflammatory medication. One of the reasons was that they found that there was a relatively high risk of if you used it for a prolonged period of time, it could cause some gastrointestinal problems. And secondly, it interfered with our pain model. So we're looking to know whether doing a certain intensity or duration or frequency of exercise is staying at 5 out of 10 or below. But if we're taking painkilling medication, that's going to artificially alter the amount of pain we're in. Therefore, we could end up saying, oh, well, that was only a 5 out of 10. But because we'd necked about 8 ibuprofen, uh, we don't realise how sore it is. And we're actually making the condition worse without realising it. And also, do you remember we call these tendinopathies and not a tendinitis anymore? And that's because in a lot of research papers in the past, what they've done is they've taken out small biopsies or tissue samples from painful Achilles, whacked it under a microscope and found that there's actually very often, no evidence of any inflammatory cells in that tissue at all. So if there's no inflammatory cells, it means there's no inflammatory process. And if there's no inflammatory process, then why do we need to take anti-inflammatories? Okay, So that's the reasons why the research showed not to use or didn't recommend to use anti-inflammatory medication. Another one to give a swerve to was corticosteroid injections into the Achilles. Uh, Researchers found that there's no obvious difference between corticosteroid injections and placebo injections. And also, uh, corticosteroid injections are associated with uh, a higher risk of future rupture of that uh, Achilles tendon. A couple of things we could do alongside. treatment program we talked about so they're not instead of alongside is shockwave therapy it was recommended that maybe you have three sessions of shockwave therapy if the initial 12 weeks of treatment failed okay so you do your 12 weeks of treatment first of our exercises we showed earlier and uh, if that fails then we could do another 12 weeks of exercises plus an addition of the shockwave therapy as well and another one that controversially that they've put into the do's but without any real clear evidence why prp this is like i said it produced sort of conflicting results in research there's no serious side effects but it is pretty expensive and apparently i've never had it done but apparently it's pretty damn painful as well but the research couldn't recommend it or warn against it so it's pretty much Sort of switzerland neutral i suppose but it's not something that i personally rush to recommend Uh, but you know each to their own and then we'll talk briefly about prognosis Uh, this again it depends on what you're measuring success as being so what is success for the client what is success for the therapist for example the, the research showed that if you asked do you feel recovered then two out of three people will say, yes, I do feel recovered. Whereas in other research, only one out of three people reached a normal pain-free level of activity within 12 months. So that's quite a difference, isn't it? You know, I know that I wouldn't necessarily feel recovered if I couldn't do pain-free activity after 11 and a half months of of treatment, and I'm sure a lot of you uh, would as well. So it depends on what question you're you're asking. But interestingly... When they looked at prognosis or the likelihood of outcome, variables such as age, BMI, gender, uh, duration of symptoms, and abnormalities, easy for me to say, when they were looking at diagnostic musculoskeletal ultrasound uh, examination, none of those really had any obvious negative effect on the prognosis. So it didn't hold you back if you were 78-year-old With a bmi of of 35 and you'd had your symptoms for you know six months or something and you had loads of degenerative changes in the tendon you know obviously there's a a few other health issues that you could think about in that uh, avatar person but as far as the achilles tendinopathy came it didn't necessarily mean that you should expect a worse outcome from it which i found really quite interesting because i'm a geek (laughs) But this is where it gets really interesting for you and you might want to shuffle in a little bit more because we're going to talk about injury risk recurrence and how we can reduce that injury risk recurrence. This one seems pretty obvious to me. The first one was they found that if you return less than 10 days, return to your sport, this is, return less than 10 days after your diagnosis, you've got a much higher risk of recurrence. Uh, So we need to respect the minimum 12 week rehab process so you go back after 10 days yeah you're probably going to get the problem again i don't think that's too much of a surprise in all honesty or it shouldn't be or it won't be now anyway they also found that another thing that could increase your risk of recurrence is insufficient length of rehab so we talked about that just now this increased the risk of recurrence so again you needed to keep to that 12 week minimum rehab process i'm starting to sound a little bit like a parrot here Uh, And then an early return to sport of less than three months. So again, you see where we're going with this. You've got to respect at least 12 weeks minimum of rehab. So that's your minimum you're gonna go in with. If you start to get this problem, you're looking at, at minimum 12 weeks of treatment. And you should also gradually build up your sports load or your training load. Remember, we've talked about it a couple of times. You know, One of the things that we look for in the history, has the load increased sharply? In the treatment, we look at load management. So these things are treatments, but we can also use these as preventative measures if we understand them in the future. You know, Look back at what sort of load had the tendon had on it. What was your training programme like? Do you look back at it and go, oh my goodness, You know, I've done loads the last two weeks. Maybe this week I should really step off the gas a little bit just to give things time to recover and settle down. Even if you're feeling no pain right now, Trust me, if you keep trying to up the load, up the intensity, up the frequency, up the duration, constantly over time, you will break down, okay? I'll put a link uh, up in one of the corners here for the YouTube channel, and I'll try and put a link into the show notes for the podcast for our presentation about the general adaptation response, which pretty much underpins uh, everything we're talking about here. And some other ideas to, to have a look at were this is very close to home for me because we live up in the northeast of scotland is training in cold weather if you don't dress for the weather and you go out training in the same stuff that you would wear in the summer you are at higher risk of getting some kind of tendon issue so don't be a hero you know wear some stuff that matches the weather if it's minus 10 you know stick some socks on you know stick some gloves on a hat or or something like that it might help save your achilles tendons from problems Another thing they looked at was reduced plantar flexor strength. So they're the muscles that help you to go up onto your toes. If we try and strengthen these, then we should try and do this before you start a training programme or before you start going back for pre-season or competitive season. If you do it during the season, it felt that we're actually not adhering to the load management that we talked about in the treatment earlier because we're actually adding more load onto the tendon. So you're perhaps increasing our risk of tendinopathy when we're actually trying to reduce it. So try and do your heavy strength work out of season or during lighter training loads. And then that should help you when you get back into your regular training. And some other risk factors were things like uh, an abnormal gait pattern. You know, if you walked and you supinated or pronated your foot a little bit, You know, if if you're worried about this, get it checked properly. I know they can do it in some trainer shops and stuff, but really make sure you go and see somebody who's properly trained in this. I'm sure these people at the trainer shops know what they're doing. But I have to ask myself, if they were that good at it, why are they not working in gait analysis full time? You know, why are they still selling trainers? Just a thought. I'm not dissing you or anything like that. It's just, you know, I prefer to go and see someone who does this stuff all the time and has got the education to prove it so. And nothing that links in with that is uh, prescriptive inlays. So, orthotics, basically. Uh, don't buy them off the shelf, get them from a proper podiatrist. Now, they didn't necessarily recommend these in the guidelines of the research, mainly because of cost. They wanted to put as many things in that were low cost or free as possible so i think that certainly played part of the decision why they didn't recommend strongly for uh, for prescriptive orthotics to be uh, used for achilles tendinopathies and if it really gets bad then of course we've got the options of surgery or have we <laughs> because the effectiveness of surgery you know there was no strong evidence that it really worked at all to be honest with you, so you can't be confident in it. One thing we can be confident in is that there was a 10% chance of getting an infection. So great, (laughs) just what you wanted. Um, You shouldn't even start thinking about surgery within 12 months of doing a good solid treatment programme if you're uh, just a a lay person. If you're a professional sports person, then maybe it will be more along the six month uh, area, but you should really give the treatment a good go before then. So in summary, The main takeaways are that, and I'll read these directly off my notes so I don't miss anything, because I want to make sure that you really get these. The main cause is a relatively fast increase in exercise frequency, intensity, or duration. And it could be some or all of these. The risk factors that can increase the chance of this are things like training in cold weather and having poor plantar flexor strength. It's important to get a solid diagnosis so that we know exactly what we're dealing with and so that you can stop calling it a tendonitis as well. You know, get someone to actually tell you it's a tenopathy. If they say it's a tendonitis, then quiz them on that. <laughs> Imaging can be useful to provide a bit more information. Like we said, whether it's reactive, is it disrepair or degenerative tendon uh, problem we have. Uh, but it's not vital for diagnosis. So don't for you have to seek someone out who can do diagnostic ultrasound. It just gives you a little bit more information, I think. And don't think that by getting a picture, then that helps to solve the problem. It really won't. You have to do the work. You have to do the exercises. And also just remember that treatment is an active process. Uh, you know, You're going to have to make judgments and adjustments. Be patient with your training. And just make sure that you do the exercises that your therapist sets you. You know, we can't just go for, for 30 minutes of therapy once or twice a week and expect that to solve the problem. It's it's not going to do that, which is why I think so many tendon problems rumble on for as long as they do. Expectations should be set to be it's going to take 12 months to improve to a decent level. That's what it should be. That should be the first thing that, that therapists tell you. And the first thing that you should know as a client is and, and that should help align your expectations. You might not like it, but fact is fact, I'm afraid. Uh, Prevention is better than cure. That's a thing to really think of. You know, wear appropriate clothes in cold weather. You know, don't be a hero. Progress your training slowly, play the long game. Think not, you know, I have to be there in six weeks. Think I still want to be training regularly in six months. That's the big thing. And strengthen those calf muscles, you know, preferably outside of the peak uh, training season. And that surgery really isn't a great option. You know, don't think that's just going to be you go in, you know, get something hacked off like a heel spur or take out degenerative tissue and it's going to be fine because it's probably not. You know, you're probably more at risk of getting an infection than you are of getting a favourable surgery result. So uh, debatable as that might be, it's, it's you know up there for discussion. But please make sure that you share this episode, now review it, comment on it. Did it go on too long? Did I cover all the areas that you wanted to have a look at? Are there any points that you'd like to discuss further? Please do subscribe to the YouTube channel as well. If you haven't already, if you haven't, why haven't you? You know, we've got some great stuff on there. It's adding uh, every week. And all the links you need to contact us are there for you to find. And... It would be really, really great to hear from every single one of you. We're here to help and to serve you, help you get towards your health and well being goals and aspirations, you know, and be part of our fantastic community. It's um it, it's wonderful. So um, I'll see you in the next episode.